one who leads our efforts when it comes to the Gospel Coalition of Arizona. And so he is uh, a gifted, gifted preacher and expositor and one that you're going to benefit immensely from. Josh has been the senior pastor here since 2009 and uh, has graduated from Southern Seminary. Uh, but the reason I like him and enjoy him is because he's a good, down-to-earth friend, humble, kind, and giving of himself. Um, and uh, so he's married to Carrie and has three boys. And so, and one dog still? That dog's still alive? Dog's still alive. So that's a miracle. All right. Well, let's welcome Josh as he comes up. Well, thanks so much. Um, so good to have you guys here today. And ladies, uh, thank you for joining us as well. Um, I wanted to start off by giving a book away. Uh, and I know we have some more books coming, but this is a new book that's come out called God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants. It is actually an abridged version of uh, Kingdom Through Covenant, which is actually 800 pages long. So this is uh, abridged and shorter and helpful. Uh, I'm just curious, is there anybody that either has, knows what this book is and was wanting it? That's A. Maybe there's not nobody like that here. Or B, uh, you are someone who uh, really would like to think more about the relationship between the Old and the New Testament and how it fits together. Uh, and you're just undecided. Uh, so at this point, well, I'm going to count to three and we're going to do hand raise. So get ready. One, two, three. Okay, maybe it's just because I was looking right in the middle. But I saw your hand first. So why don't you come on down and get it. What's your name? Alexis. All right, here you go, buddy. Let's clap for Alexis. Free books, free books. Um, excellent book. I find that to be extremely helpful, um, and I hope that it blesses you. Uh, well, I have uh, volunteered to preach first today because what I want to do is I want to model for you um, encouragement about preaching. Uh, I'm here to bring encouragement about your preaching because uh, I'm hoping that as I preach, you're thinking, I can do that so much better. Uh, but also that you're encouraged. Uh, later, Tim is going to preach, and he's going to humble us because uh, I find his preaching to be extremely um, But let's hope together that God speaks to us today. Uh, one of the best places I believe that we can go to preach God's Word and to learn how to preach God's Word uh, in a Christ-centered way is the New Testament. Right? I mean, I really believe that the New Testament gives us the best examples of how we ought to rightly use Jesus Christ and understand Jesus Christ in light of the Old Testament. What's fascinating to me, though, is so often when I am, I am studying for my sermons and preparing and I'm reading commentaries by either preachers or even scholars, I'm struck by how quick they are to assume that the biblical authors like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul were carried along by the Holy Spirit to take more liberties with the Old Testament to get to Jesus than you or me should. In other words, so often when you read, you, you see like, okay, here, here he's talking about the Old Testament, and then, okay, now he's talking about Jesus. We don't know exactly how this happened, but uh, let's just move on. Well, when we look at the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, I found that a number of commentators say that Philip essentially explains Isaiah to him, then launches into a disconnected gospel presentation before landing an invitation to be baptized. Now, you might read that and think, well, of course, these are just disconnected events and we can never really get to how exactly he connected those. But friends, I believe, like the Transformers, one of my favorite cartoons, that there is more there than meets the eye. In other words, when we come to these texts, I believe that there's much more to be seen. And Philip, I really believe that he demonstrates a deeper understanding of 
how Jesus signals the new covenant that Isaiah prophesied about. In other words, Philip doesn't launch or leap from Isaiah to Jesus. He exposits Jesus from Isaiah and then explains to the eunuch how to respond to that Jesus, the person. And by way of context, I believe that Luke wrote this book, Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, to unfold how Jesus, ascending to heaven, and ten days later, pouring out the Spirit on men from many nations at Pentecost, began to fulfill those promises of Joel. The, the promise where Joel uh, is quoted in Acts 2.17, that in those last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Uh, the rest of Acts really unfolds exactly what he means by all flesh. Now, in Acts 2, we just see believers who received the Spirit, were baptized, and added to the church. But catch this, I really believe it's important to note that many Jews thought that those promises of the Spirit being poured out on all flesh were for the Jews. But the rest of Acts unfolds the far-reaching implications of the Spirit being poured out on all flesh. And in Acts 8, Philip seems to be on the cutting edge of taking the Gospel to outsiders. First preached, He first preached to Samaria in Acts 8, where everybody got saved, just like we want our preaching to be, right? We preach, everybody gets saved. I wish it worked that way. But in verses 26-40, to 40, we find that Isaiah's prophecy seems to be on the forefront of Philip's mind. And Philip reveals that the Gospel invites the ultimate outsiders to draw near to God and His people. I mean, it's a beautiful message. If you're taking notes, it's a great thing to write down. I think it's the main point of this text that the Gospel invites the ultimate outsiders to draw near to God and His people. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, look with me in Acts 8, verses 26-40. to 40. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. I'm going to first look at the first two verses, verses 26 to 27, where we are going to quickly find that this Ethiopian eunuch was the ultimate outsider. For the first point, the Ethiopian eunuch was the ultimate outsider. Uh, look with me in verses 26 and 27. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So catch this. God, he doesn't tell Philip what his mission is. He simply tells him to go towards the road from Jerusalem to that old Philistine town of Gaza. And he just happens in that moment upon an Ethiopian eunuch whose brief description, hear me, I believe tells us much about why he was so interested in Isaiah's prophecy. It was not an accident that this eunuch was reading Isaiah. So just notice the, the four ways that he's described. First, he is an Ethiopian. Now, when you think about Ethiopian, don't think modern day Ethiopia. Uh, think about that ancient nation of Cush in Africa that's mentioned so often in the Old Testament, including in Isaiah, where God professed and says, prophesied that one day they will be humiliated before the glorious God. And we see here that the ancient, we, we see here that uh, this city is 
a, a city that was seen to have a bleak future before God. In fact, the ancient Near East considered Ethiopians to be outsiders. And not just outsiders, the outmost of outsiders. If you read Ben Witherington, he says this, speaking of these people, in the mythological geography of the ancient Greek historians, and other writers as well, Ethiopia was frequently identified with the ends of the earth. They were seen to be an alien people that were far off, that looked much different than them. In fact, Herodotus in the 5th century BC even speaks of how different their features were and how they just looked like a different kind of people. They were ultimate outsiders on the ends of the earth. Uh, he's also described, secondly, as a eunuch. And, and you know that kings often castrated and even dismembered men that would be working closely with either their harem or the queens. And his name, this eunuch, would have ended with his death. There would be no kids for him. His name would not be carried on. Third, he was clearly trusted and powerful because he controlled the queen's treasury. You know that if somebody controls your money, that you trust them or you ought to. If you don't, you have a real, real big problem. This was a very trusted man. And also because he had the amount of resources that he had, he had incredible power and authority. Four, we find that he had traveled, and this is interesting, all the way to Jerusalem. All the way to Jerusalem. And what did he get for his journey but the opportunity to just sit in the parking lot as the people of God worship the living God in the temple of God? Now, you might say to yourself, it doesn't say that he was sitting in the parking lot. So why do you say he was sitting in the parking lot? Well, Deuteronomy 23.1 says that he must have been sitting in the parking lot because it says there that a eunuch may never enter the assembly of the Lord. He'd never be allowed to fully join the people of God in worship. Uh, without getting too explicit, it makes sense, doesn't it? Just think about it. A eunuch could never receive the sign of the covenant, circumcision, or be able to multiply and fill the earth as God had mandated to creation. And so I think this is uh, one reason, amongst others, that uh, another guy, J.B. Holehill, adds, uh, he adds to it, he says, you know, he never could have become a proper proselyte since from the Jewish perspective, he was mutilated. So this was a, an unclean, dirty, mutilated man from the ends of the earth who was not allowed in the, the, the presence of God. And you'll remember the temple had layers, multiple layers. And, and there was an outer court where Gentiles could come, but no one could come further that was not a true person, part of the assembly of God. But can you imagine? Just think about this. Going to this much trouble, traveling weeks from Ethiopia to come all the way to Jerusalem to worship the living God. We don't know why he came or what gave him impetus to come. We just know that the very purpose was that he worshiped God and he gets there into the, the, the presence of God's people and they tell him, you can come this far and no further. You need to stop right here. You can't come any further than the parking lot. Now, his worship problems we, we see here, that, friends, they aren't merely geographic. They are physical. They are spiritual. I think the most dangerous way to look at this eunuch if we want to really think about this in a personal way this morning is to fail to recognize that we are all the outsiders in this text. Now I'm pretty sure that a supermajority, if not all of us, are Gentiles and not Jews. 
Uh, we are those who have been parked and would have been parked right next to this guy outside of the assembly of God, looking in on something that we were not allowed to take part in. Friends, hear me. Moral people, moral people may be more in danger of missing the beauty of the gospel here in this text than obvious sinners because of our sacrifices, right? I mean, we have all kinds of sacrifices. And I believe because of our sacrifices for God, there's a subtle danger that we begin to think of ourselves not as outsiders who have been brought in, but insiders who have bought in. There's a real subtle difference. You catch that? There's, there's a danger that we, we think of ourselves so subtly. We wouldn't say this out loud, but we, we actually identify on the inside, in our heart of hearts, where nobody's looking, that we are actually outsiders, not outsiders that have been brought in by grace, but insiders who have bought in through our works. Fellow pastor brothers, might I suggest not only that we are not impervious to danger here, but we might even be in graver danger than those others because of the fact that we sacrifice so much day in and day out for the sake of our good God. And perhaps we have begun to imagine that our seat inside has been paid for by us. I mean, just think about it. How much time do you spend studying and praying over God's Word for the good of your people in a way that nobody else ever sees except for I mean, Maybe your wife knows that you're gone. Uh, maybe she's tempted to think at times you're just playing Tetris on the, the computer. But nobody really sees the time that you are pouring, the energy that you're pouring into God's Word for the sake not just of your own soul, but the sake of others. You're not just studying for what's good for you, but what's good for everybody else. And then there's the money. Of course, we could make much more doing something else. Because we're leaders. Uh, we could lead something great, but we have sacrificed to lead something small for the glory of God. And we could have more money, if, if not for the sacrifice. And how many Saturday nights has your family had a movie night? Or gone to some fun event without you because you needed to prepare your sermon for God's people, for God's glory. And then there's the emotional burden. I mean, you're, you're off the clock, but you can't stop thinking about all of those counseling situations. Families falling apart and need a desperate help. And you want to be more and more help than what you actually can be. And you're freshly reminded of the fact that you're not the Christ that they need, that you need to turn them to the Christ that they need. So we'd be rich, successful, and have more friends and fun, if not for our sacrifices. But brothers, let me ask you, have your sacrifices, which are great, begun to dwarf the greatness of Christ's sacrifice in your instructions? Let me just encourage you and myself this morning, think less of your sacrifices for Christ and more of Christ's sacrifice for you. We haven't been, we haven't bought in, we've been brought in. Our people will sacrifice and suffer as we do. So there are other implications of the way that we understand how outside we were. If we write because we feel like we've earned a special seat on the inside because of who we are and what we've done, it lessens our ability to delight and take joy in what God has done. That's what happened to the Pharisees who Jesus told I did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. You are not ready to delight in me yet because you don't know your needs yet. 
Friends, we don't want to lose sight of our need. What a loss of a sight of our need leads to is what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls dead orthodoxy. And this dead orthodoxy, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes about saying, dead orthodoxy in practice is as bad as heterodoxy because it is quite useless. Knowing good doctrine, but losing sight of the relationship and the neediness that we have for Jesus daily will lead to a deadness. So friends, hear me. On the last day, you can't point to past works to explain away those more respectable sins like envy, bitterness, grumbling, gossip, a hatred for authority or being an authority. A dead orthodoxy may be more dangerous than a lively liberalism. We need to be awake to that. So friends, hear me. Proud hearts lead to dead religion. The proud pastors lead to dead churches. Saving grace is for sinners know their sin. Know that we are supposed to be outside. But we can't stop there. You know, this text, catch this. When we look at it, most people don't have to work hard at all to relate to this eunuch, this outsider. Fearful to draw near to God for all kinds of reasons. Uh, maybe uh, you are one of those who have a past that you don't like to talk about. I don't know what that is. You feel like you can't, as a pastor, share your past because you're worried that maybe in some ways it will take away from your authority because of how great you are. Or maybe it's just that you are a member of a church who has aspects of your life that you don't want to share. Maybe you followed that steady stream of Planned Parenthood videos flowing on Facebook and you sense deep guilt over some past decision that you've made. It, you, you turn from it, but you, you still don't feel like you've been delivered from it. And, and you think to yourself, if I were to actually confess or to let others know what, what I have done, I'm not sure that God or His people really could forgive me. Or maybe you struggle with same-sex attraction right now. Or you have in the past, and you fear that confessing it, or even sharing it, that perhaps if you were to let people know how Christ has transformed you, that they would still reject you or even cast you out. And some outsiders that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis they refuse to draw near to God because their experience has been that God's people always seem so sad, angry, and hostile towards others because of their sins. And why would you want to be part of that people or their God? Friends, I think what we need is a fresh experience with God Himself and what God says about Himself. And so look what He says, secondly, in verses 28 to 35. God Himself says, I'm the God who chases down the outsider. I'm that God. So look at with me at verses 28 to 35. Verses 28 to 35. There he goes on to say, after he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you were reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. His humiliation, justice was denied. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you? Does a prophet say this about himself 
What about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning with this scripture, and told him the good news about Jesus. So catch this. In, verse 20, in verses 28, the Ethiopian eunuch hits the road for his long journey home when the Spirit of God sends Philip running after this chariot. I don't know if he threw up a thumb in the air to hitchhike or, or if he just kind of jogged alongside the chariot and listened along. But Philip hears him reading from Isaiah clearly. And he asks the eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? To which he responds, how can I unless someone guides me? Notice again also in verse 30 that he says he was reading the prophet Isaiah. This word for he was reading, uh, you'll notice that it's in the imperfect active indicative tense, which means that he had begun reading at some point in the past and that he was continuing to read without any kind of end in sight. So I get the idea from this that he's not just reading a snippet from Isaiah or isolating himself to the part of Isaiah that we see, but that he has been pouring over the scroll of Isaiah. And he just happens upon this part whenever Philip comes along. Now you'll see more in a moment why I think that's an important detail. But when Philip bounces up on that eunuch in verses 32 to 33, he just happens to be reading from Isaiah 53 verses 7 to 8. To 53, 7 to 8. Now he, he's using the Septuagint version here, and so it's not going to like match up perfectly to what you find in your Old Testament. We can talk about that some other time. But this is what he says, in quoting it in verses 32 to 33 of Acts 8. He says this, uh, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied. Who can describe this generation? For his take it for his life was taken away from the earth. Of course, this verse, these verses stand at the heart of Isaiah's Psalm of the Suffering Servant. And the eunuch asks, I believe, a great question. Who are these verses speaking of? Now, if you look and, and you study this text, you'll find that a number of answers have been given to who Isaiah is speaking of. Uh, some will tell you that Isaiah is talking about himself. Jeremiah speaks of himself in some of these ways. Uh, some say that this text speaks of Israel as a people. And, and so there are these options that were available. But in verse 35, Philip opens his mouth and beginning in this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He said, this is about Jesus. In other words, Philip's answer is that Jesus is Isaiah's suffering servant. Now, does the heart of the gospel surprise you here before we move on does the heart of the gospel does it surprise you in the heart of god that's on display but just think about this first century religious jews would have only noticed this ethiopian eunuch if he got too close to the worship service to remind him to get back and, and here's god coming and approaching this eunuch and take note that it's god himself who runs after this ultimate outsider it almost makes you want to be an outsider, doesn't it? I want God to run after me. And, and notice here, Christian brothers and sisters, remember that, that God is the great evangelist that runs before you. When we are preaching and teaching God's Word, it is easy to think to yourself, I, I am so insufficient for these things. But always be encouraged, knowing that God goes before you. 
And do you really think this story would have us to think that Philip just happened to run into an Ethiopian eunuch who just happened to be reading Isaiah? No, God had already been working on the heart of this man long before Philip showed up with the good news of Jesus. Philip would have been shocked when he showed up on this Ethiopian eunuch and found that he was his missionary enterprise. He was so different than him. Friends, our churches, I believe they ought to surprise people with the kinds of people that he draws near to himself and to us. We ought to be a diverse people that demonstrate the power of the gospel to create a new people. But also notice that we have the same resources that Philip had. I think we should be encouraged by that as well. He, we have God's Word. We have Isaiah too. And so it does not return void. God's Word. I love God's Word. It's amazing to me as I look at God's Word in God's Word. We are told and shown consistently that God's Word, do you know what it always comes with? It always comes personally from God, with God's presence, and with God's power. So that when we are going to share Christ with others, what we know is not just that God has already been working in hearts, but that as we come with God's Word, He is coming with us. And by the power of His Holy Spirit, He is working through us. God's Word is powerful. Powerful to create spiritual life in hardened, dead hearts. And it's also powerful to harden dead hearts. But our job is simply to go and tell it on the mountain. My friends, God also promises that He gives His powerful presence to His disciples in Matthew 28 as they look to go and make making disciples, telling them, promising them, Lo, I am with you always as you go. So Philip doesn't vanish like Elijah after the eunuch believed to display. Uh, he doesn't... You'll notice in this text, it's so fascinating, and so people... Uh, confuse it and think that, oh, he vanished and then popped up on the eunuch, and then, oh yeah, the eunuch believed because people don't disappear and reappear. You'll notice in this text, though, just to be clear, he doesn't disappear until after this person has responded to God's Word. Why? I believe he wants to show us that it is the sufficiency of God's Word that saves. We need to put our confidence in God's Word, not in magic tricks. So God's Word is sufficient for us in the same way that it was sufficient for Philip. But we see here also that all of us have people that we love. I think there's a strong encouragement here. Folks that we see that seem to be teetering on the edge of earth about to topple over into final judgment. And maybe you've given up on praying for them, or maybe you've gotten cold feet about sharing Christ with people you sense are hopeless, left to yourself. Friends, when people seem unsearchable, don't forget God's zeal to save the ultimate outsiders. Those are the very people that God wants to reach and promises to reach. Expect, expect, let us not lose that expectation, or our people certainly will too, that we will be surprised by the hard-hearted sheep that God catches. And look at how the eunuch immediately responds with faith in verses 36. There we find the ultimate outsider is invited inside. Look with me there again. Verses 36 to 40. There it says, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See? Here is water. He's an educated man. What prevents me?
from being baptized. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and uh, he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, as we look here, did you catch that? Did you catch what just happened? He responds with faith and asks to get baptized. Well, that's a great day, just on the face of it. Like, yes, I want that day every day. But here's my question as I read this. Maybe you've asked the same question. How did Philip move the eunuch from Isaiah to Jesus to baptisms? Right? Uh, I mean, because that's what moved him to rejoicing. Did he simply say, Isaiah's talking about Jesus, so let me tell you everything I know about Jesus, and we're talking about the same kind of stuff? Maybe, but, but I don't think so. I believe this eunuch was drawn to Isaiah for deeply personal reasons. I believe there was a reason that he was drawn to this Isaiah. The verses that he reads aloud to Philip are from Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12, which speak of a coming innocent sufferer who would suffer on behalf of God's people, being pierced for their transgressions and crushed for iniquities. He would bring God's people peace and heal their wounds by his wounds. In fact, Isaiah 53.11, speaking of this coming Messiah, says the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This interesting place in the Bible where we see here, uh, notice there is one who will bear the sins of many. Interesting development in redemptive history. One for the many, this suffering servant. Uh, he'll be a, a representative head. And even though he only reads two verses, I believe he also has, as I said before, uh, the chapters before and after. And even the whole book of Isaiah in mind as he is speaking to this eunuch. Now catch this. I think things get nuts following Isaiah 53 if you're a Jew and you're reading through the book of Isaiah. Things get crazy. You're wondering, like, what? okay, where, where did he just go? I mean, he literally has stepped into a new heavens and a new earth. I mean, as Isaiah is, is moving from Isaiah to 53 to 54 and into the next chapters, Isaiah sees a coming Messiah who will deal with the wrath of God and usher in a new and better covenant. Because okay, there's a new covenant that's going to be different. And then he immediately turns attention to an extraordinary curse reverse. And I believe that Isaiah 56 blew this eunuch's mind. I mean, just imagine, you are this eunuch. You are in the presence and the moment of turning back from Jerusalem where you are freshly reminded that you may come close, but no closer. Uh, you are an outsider. He has left this massive worship service in all of Jerusalem where no amount of money, no matter how many possessions he had, it could not get him out of the parking lot of the outsiders into the inside of the assembly of God. It's no accident that he's pouring over Isaiah longing to understand when this Messiah and this new and better covenant would arrive for him. And then you read Isaiah 56, 3-8. Turn there with me. I, I want you to see this. 
sure you've seen this before, brothers, but let's just freshly look at this and be encouraged. Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 8. Look what he says. Let not the foreigner who has judged himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from His people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep My Sabbaths, who choose the things that please Me and hold fast My covenants, I will give in My house and within My walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and minister to Him. To love the name of the Lord. To be His servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mount and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to Him besides those already gathered. Can you imagine what it must have been like for this unit to hear that Jesus has ushered in this new covenant that promises that He will no longer be a dry tree, unable to multiply and fill the earth with kids. He's being invited not just out of the parking lot, but into the very house of God with a name that would never be cut off. There's a sense in which the Holy of Holies has been opened up. Not only can you now get into the second tier, but you are allowed into the third tier and something even greater. Jesus is a sacrifice offered once for making Him innocent and clean before God. Do you see it? It is, if this ultimate outsider, a eunuch from the far reaches and edges of the earth, has been welcomed into the house of prayer, being invited to draw near to God and summoned into the assembly of God's people, that means that there's hope for all of us and all of them, regardless of how we or they have sinned or been sinned against or what our background is. And friends, that God sprints after the ultimate outsiders. How does baptism fit into this Isaiah narrative? Okay, is that a leap? Is that a, a massive jump that's taken place? The eunuchs who were castrated and often dismembered literally couldn't take the old, the old covenant sign of circumcision. But catch this. The old covenant sign of circumcision pointed to Jesus' new covenant, which is signaled by something greater, which is the, the, the circumcision of the heart. It, it has been fulfilled by the circumcision of the heart. And that's why the New Testament says that when you turn from living for sin to living for Jesus... God gives you Jesus' righteousness and adopts you into His family, which comes with the Holy Spirit, which seals us until we're glorified. Now, now that's where baptism comes in. Uh, what baptism, it's, it's not the equivalent to circumcision the way that I understand it. Now, we can talk about that later. But baptism is actually an outward public display of an inward hidden work whereby God has circumcised our hearts uniting us by faith to Christ and Christ's people. Now that's why this eunuch is so pumped about baptism. He just got the nod 
to enter into God's house with God's people. You see that? You can come in now. <laughs> That's great news. This baptism means He now, for the first time, He doesn't have to sit outside by Himself anymore. He can draw near to God with confidence and join with other brothers and sisters in living for the living God. And this baptism means that now, for the first time, He has a future and a hope and a family. His story doesn't end with death, but it goes beyond it. And here's what we learn from this unit. I don't think it's that we should practice spontaneous baptisms. Again, we can talk about that later. The bigger narrative of this story is that God has invited the ultimate outsiders inside. He evaluated all of His power and money in the world and assessed that grasping God and His people was far better we don't know what happened to him after this day. But I believe that God did much more through this unit. In fact, J. Daniel Hayes, speaking of this, said, Although we do not know what happened to the Cushite official, it is clear that by the 4th century A.D., Christianity was firmly established in his homeland of Cush. Did you catch that? Gospel church in Africa, 4th century. It's clear that the African experience with the gospel can hardly be relegated to the 17th, 18th and 19th century encounters with European slave traders and missionaries, as is sometimes alleged. From the very beginning of Christianity, there were black believers. Black believers before white believers. Did you get that? God did that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and praise you that you are the God that runs after outsiders. Father, we have so many reasons that we begin to believe subtly that we are insiders who have in some way bought in through our own efforts rather than that we are actually outsiders who have been brought in by your infinite grace and mercy and love and goodness. And Father, we as pastors and teachers of your word, we are not exempt from this. might even be a greater danger for us. So Lord, we pray that you would awaken our hearts, awaken us to what you have done for us not just for others, or for us for others, but for us as individuals who have been called into a new family and given a new name that will last forever because of what your son Jesus sacrificed on our behalf. So, great name of that son Jesus.